hey, grab a Bible, grab a Bible. <laughs> Let's just take this thing straight to God's word. It's our only hope. Uh, grab a Bible, go to Matthew chapter six. If you're watching with us online, you're new uh, to MCC, we'd love for you to click one of those links right there. We'd love to get to know you, uh, hanging out with you. Hey mom, hey grandma, hey some Aunt Josephines and everybody else that are out there watching everything else. Glad you guys are here today. Uh, if you're brand new to MCC, I, my name's Trent. I have the unbelievable privilege of being the lead pastor here at MCC for some reason. And uh, it is awesome that you would take some time out of your week to be here. Hey, I want before we dive into the word, um, we, we talked about city nights, this prayer gathering that we did a couple Mondays ago. And the next one is gonna be actually this coming Monday. So this coming Monday, 6.30, uh, be there for that, man. It was a powerful, uh, there was nobody, there, there wasn't anybody there who left going like, uh, it wasn't apparent and obvious that the spirit of God was moving. And so I, I don't know about you, but man, I just long for some more of that kind of real stuff in my day-to-day life. Uh, so Monday night, be here 6.30. And I wanna give you a chance to mark your calendars even more. Um, November 15th, here's some really cool news for you guys. Uh, the crowd who was there at this, we told them a little bit then and they were fired up about it. And I think you are gonna be too. So November 15th, uh, we have been um, given the city lot to be able to have that and ho- have that be a place where we host a prayer gathering. So if you've gone through the square, uh, what used to be the parking lot of Scoops and Holy Smokes um, has been converted into this like outdoor hangout area. Uh, the people who own that lot, they said, hey, uh, we, we reached out to them, we said, hey, we wanna do a night where we just gather together and pray for our city. And they were like, cool, the lot's yours. So Monday night, November 15th, that whole lot is gonna be ours to gather together in our city and pray for our city. So go ahead and mark your calendars, November 15th. That's where we're gonna be. Uh, we're trying to find out a way to like do some food and some hanging out, maybe some ice cream. I don't know, it's gonna be awesome night, prayer and all that other stuff is gonna be mixed in. So mark your calendar, all right? Are you at Matthew chapter six yet? God, take forever. Um, All right, Matthew chapter six, that's where we're gonna be. I'm gonna read through this and then we're gonna go back and unpack it. That's kind of how we do things here at MCC. We kind of take God's word serious and we go through this word by word, verse by verse. And and again, I don't know what you showed up looking for at church today. Uh, I tell our church this a lot. If you're new here, you may not have heard this, but if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this before. What I'm getting ready to read to you is the most important part of my message. Not all the things I say about it. This is God's word. This is Jesus speaking directly into our lives. Hopefully you showed up church like going, the way I'm doing it right now isn't perfect. And I could use some help. And Jesus says, I can help with that. And says, here's this new life that I offer you. And there's no better place than this thing that he, he, we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of his most extensive teaching on what this good life that he offers is all about. And here in this passage, we see him lean into that. I'm gonna start in Matthew 6. I'm gonna go up past a little breakdown in your Bible if you're reading it uh, and go start at verse 24 because that's really what the thought that starts verse 25 is all about. So Matthew 6, 24. Jesus is talking. He's outdoors on a hillside in Galilee to a big crowd of people and he says stuff like this. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And here's our passage today, and it's built off of that point right there. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you're gonna eat or drink or your body and what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you? By worrying, can I single hour to his life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See, 
See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spend, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and then tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And all the church said, amen. All right, let's pray, and we're going to dive into this. Jesus, we thank you for your word, for these truths that um, we could just like read through this 17 more times and just call it a day because there's so much in here that is just so applicable to our lives right now. There's not a single person in here who showed up today and it's like, I just don't worry about stuff, and I'm just good to go, and I don't have any anxiety. I don't have any fear. I don't have any, any deep concern for what's going on around me, what's going on in our country, what's going on in the world, what's going on in the global economy. All these things, God, they are pestering our minds Maybe even this morning, God. And so, Father, I pray that you would silence phones, that you would kill notifications, that you would allow us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to hone in on the exact words you would want to speak into us today. In your name, amen. So today we're going to be talking about fear and worry. And one of the things that I didn't really realize I was going to get to do as a, as a father was help navigate kids through fears. Um, sometimes they're, they're harder to navigate through, but one of the ones I really like navigating my kids through is fears that are just unconfounded. Like the things that they're afraid of that makes no sense to be afraid of. Uh, things like frogs and fireworks and, and other things like that. And what I've found is in parenting, oftentimes people go kind of one or two ways. And you, you know, if you hang around on a lot of people or you got some family member, you know you have some family members who tend this way with kids and the things that they're afraid of. And then you have some people that go this way. Usually those one or two ways is the style that says, hey, you're afraid of this and we're just going to hope you grow out of it. All right? Anybody know those people who like you're sitting at the table and like you put carrots on the kid's plate and the mom's like, oh, don't put carrots on the plate. They're scared of carrots. And you're like, why are they scared of carrots? Like, this is weird. And then there's a type of parent, and this is where the shoe makes lean. Oh, you're afraid of frogs? Well, let's let you grab a frog. Like, come on. Oh, you don't want to jump off this diving board? Let's do it together. <laughs> like, oh, you don't want to, you're scared of riding bikes? Well, let's just go down this hill. Let's see what happens. Like, we take our kids right up to the fear and do it with them to show them, hey, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just a frog. Like, it's okay. I mean, we have this hilarious picture of Ezra. We're going to try to find out. I'll try to post it later on social media. But he's holding a, he's holding a frog in his hand, in his face. He's just tears coming out of his eyes. Just, ah, just like. So I, I don't know which one of those is best. Um, we'll, we'll see which one of those kids end up in therapy. Um, like, who knows? Um, I, I think Ezra's going to be all right. Uh, he's getting over his fear of frogs and bugs and little things. Um, but what I found in, in my life following God as a father as I read through scripture and see how Jesus um, treated the disciples and what he did with them, I find more often what it looks like God doing is not going, hey, that's an irrational fear, um, just grow out of it. More often than not, I think the way God handles our irrational fears, and even the rational ones, is going, okay, you're afraid of that. Let's walk right through it. Here's the storm, get in the boat. Here's Golgotha, let's go up the hill. Here's the empty tomb, I'm going to lead all you right to it. We're going to go right to the thing you're most afraid of. And today, I think that's kind of what Jesus does in this passage. And so I want to journey through it with you because I think there are some things in your fears, whether they're irrational or rational, that Jesus wants to bring freedom to. Because most of us, 
when it comes to fear, anxiety, and worry, you fall somewhere on the spectrum. There's some people in this room who you take you know, medication, you've been clinically de- de- defined by a doctor of having clinical anxiety. And, and I, I wanna do everything I can in the, in the course of the next few minutes where I talk about that um, to just hopefully give you a chance to hear that, that there is nothing that is sinful or wrong about that. That uh, mental health is, is a real aspect of health and that there are some things, there are some issues and there are some struggles that you can't just extra faith and extra believe away that God created and gave people medication to, to be able to, to do those things. The other side of that coin is going, there is this supernatural belief that we still have to keep in our Heavenly Father, that He is the reigning ruler of our emotions, and He can do anything and everything in there, things that medicine could never do. He operates fully outside of that realm. So if we haven't given all the credit there, we should. Then there are other people, and this is kind of where I fall. Where your anxiety, fear, and worry is kind of like chronic back pain, like it's just something you've got used to. It's just this underlying reverberation in your life. And you don't, you don't really, sometimes you don't notice it. Sometimes it's always there. But like you don't really know what life is without kind of having like at least four or five things to kind of be moderately worried about. And we're all somewhere in between. So no matter where you're at, I think Jesus can speak to you today. And I think he can bring freedom. So he starts out, uh, Matthew 24. Again, this is important. We start here. Again, you're reading in your Bible. It's like there are two different statements. So he talks about this love of money, and then he starts a new thought. Like a lot of your Bibles, what does it say right there before you start verse uh, 25? What does it say? Do not, do not worry, cure for your anxiety, stuff like that. Here's, what, here's my encouragement to you just as a, 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 one Bible reader to another. Um, shout out to Jock Peterson, but the Bible is not to be read like a strand of pearls. It's not one good thing that you finish and then you jump to another good thing. Especially the Sermon on the Mount, it's meant to be read as, as a links in a chain that are all connected to each other. And so when he says, what he does in verse 24, it's gonna be on the screens, you can see it. He says, no one can serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other. You either be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, God's, uh, Jesus is here in this moment. He, he's talking to them about priorities, He's talking to them about who you will serve. What will be your motivating aspect in life? Would it be to serve God or would it be to serve money? Okay, so he's saying you cannot serve both. This, this thing that I can do what I wanna do and do what God wants to do, that I can have personal ambition and then godly ambition, it's false. He says you cannot do that. And he's gonna unpack here in this next passage why that is. So he says, therefore, verse 25, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or your body, what you'll wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. See, what he's after here, in their day and age, it's a little bit different. You know, there's not a whole lot of us that are just, you know, maybe some, uh, but for the most part, all of us, you know, we're, we're pretty straight when it comes to food. Uh, best I can tell, online people, I don't know about you, you're in the privacy of your own home. Best I can tell, everybody here's got clothes on. Um, online, like I said, I don't know. I'm gonna pray for you and believe the best about you that you are fully clothed at this moment. Um, But it's deeper than just having those needs met. See, one of the things that in their culture was the reality and is also too in ours is that the clothes that you wear said something about your identity. 
Like if someone walks in this room and you know they've got like a, you know, Italian, like Gucci, Louis Vuitton, something kind of suit on and they've got just accessories all over the place. They're wearing a scarf, like nice shoes that kind of come to that point. They look like they're made out of alligators or ostrich or some sort of exotic animal. And that person comes in, big Rolex, watch everything else. You go, hey, that's someone who has some money. Like that's, a, that's, somebody, that's somebody special. And then you see somebody walk in with holes, you know, clothes with holes in them, you know, a backpack that's kind of all greasy and dirty and everything else and shoes with holes in them and messy hair and a scruffy old beard and everything else. And you, you, you begin to think, you, you, you define things or you guess things about that person's identity by the clothes that they wear, their outward appearance. Same thing with food. Like growing up, man, like it was a big deal when we do Taco Bell. It was a big deal when we do Taco Bell. And then I go to school and I hear my friends saying like, we ate it out back. And I was like, where is that at? Where... Where, you went to Australia for dinner, dude? That's crazy. And I realized there's this place in Douglasville. Um, and then, you know, the same thing. You go, to your, you go to a buddy's house, and you realize, oh, man, they must be rich. Like, they have real Pop-Tarts, not great value Pop-Tarts. And you, you get to piece these things together. See, that's, that's the thing. That, that's what Jesus is saying here is, like, it's not just about having food and having clothes. It's about how those things determine your identity. And what, what he's after here, and this is, again, this whole idea of these unpacking and the Sermon on the Mount, it is not about your outward expressions. It's about who you are on the inside. That's the most important thing about you that should determine everything about you. So he's telling these people, hey, you can't be consumed with who you are on the outside so much so that it trumps who you really are on the inside. So he says, let's, let's chill out worrying about those things. Now, what I want to do before we go into all the reasons why Jesus says not to worry is to really define worry biblically. And I want to do that because our culture has kind of hijacked anxiety. And if you talk to people who are my generation down, you are, don't, don't talk to them, listen to them. That's actually a really good idea. Uh, older generation, listen to them instead of talking uh, to them or about them. Listen to them. I'm telling you, you go a whole lot further. Listen to them. Listen, 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 listen. One of the things that you'll discover is my generation down wears anxiety like a badge of honor. They'll talk about it, they'll tweet about it, post about it. Uh, it shows up in the jokes that they make. But anxiety is something that, to my generation down, is, is, is somewhat of this badge of honor. There's no shame in saying I've, I've, I, I'm going to this counselor or this therapist or I'm struggling with this. And it just comes out in modern language. Oftentimes, I think it's a, a myth. Like what, What's really going on is just like, hey, I have a job and I'm kind of worried about it. But because it's so modern and, and just like repetitive and vernacular, it's, I, I'm anxious about work. In your generation, my generation up, you would just say, I'm worried or I'm concerned or I'm this. See, where my generation down wears anxiety as a badge of honor, my generation up wears busyness as a badge of honor. So, oh, we're busy. We're just staying busy. No, I, I know you're busy. Well, how you been this week? Man, we've been busy. Like it's something to be proud of. In the same way that you would look at a younger generation going, I'm anxiety, and you think, oh, well, you just need a safe place, you snowflake. Well, it's both the same thing. You're just dealing with different sides of it, and you call it different things. And so what Jesus is saying here is, let's try to get a from God definition on anxiety. Because maybe that will do us some better good. Um, the Greek word that's translated that where we get anxiety and how we translate it in here, uh, the Greek word, we're going to show it to you on the screen, it's called marimna. You've heard me talk about this before. Marimna, it sounds exotic, but it's really bad. Um, marimna means to be drawn in opposite directions. 
which is exactly why Jesus in verse 24 said, you cannot serve God in money. You can't have two masters. If you do that, you're having marimna. You're gonna be pulled in opposite directions. You cannot go God and you cannot go that. And the reason we feel that anxiety is because we're trying to serve them both and we're pulled in different directions. That's why people who are not even Christians and you guys who are Christians, you're saying things like, I am stretched so thin because you're pulled in opposite directions because you're trying to serve two masters. I'm all over the place because you're separated and divided apart because you're trying to serve two masters. That's what he's saying. He says, that's, that's what anxiety is. Now, let me just pause right there and, and, and just for the sake of defining some things. Um, there is a difference between anxiety and concern. And what I'm not talking about is just being some, you know, Bob Marley. And like, you just don't care about anything. You just do life. You just, whatever, man, whatever comes, comes. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. There is a concern God's people has to have, but there's a difference between concern and anxiety. Concern goes, I'm concerned about my kids' grades. Anxiety stays up till 4 a.m. building the volcano for them because you know that they've got to make an A. That's the difference. Concern is, is being nervous, nervous about your job and nervous about your security so that you work hard and do the right thing. Anxiety is letting it rob sleep from you and, and becoming an insomniac and developing stomach ulcers. That's anxiety. And, and so there is a difference there. And so, you know, anytime you talk about anxiety, and, and I think this is, I, I've talked about it a lot and read a lot of stuff on it, and one of the things that I, I don't think is talked about nearly enough is really the question around worry and anxiety and the question of, is it a sin? Is it a sin to be worried? Is it a sin to be anxious? have those anxious thoughts. What do you think? Just give yourself a second to, to ponder those things. Uh, you probably know where I'm going to go. Um, but what do you think? Or maybe you, have you ever even asked yourself, yourself that question? Is it a sin to be worried? Is it a sin to be anxious, to have those anxious thoughts? Now, again, let's just, let's just go with Jesus together. In this passage that we just got through reading, we have three times Jesus explicitly, like no way, I tried in the Greek, there's no way around it. He explicitly says, do not worry. Three times. And then he proceeds to give nine arguments as to why we shouldn't. No other topic in this whole Sermon on the Mount, he gives that much detailed and repetitive and argumentative attention to. So if Jesus says something, three times don't do this, and then gives nine arguments to why we should not do that, then we've got to ask ourselves a question. Is it a sin to disobey things that Jesus clearly tells us not to do? And that's where, friends, I would have to say, yes, worry is a sin, because Jesus tells us not to. And anytime we do, we're doing what the savior of the universe, the one who we said was not just our savior to get us out of heaven, but was also the Lord of our life, which means we had to submit to his rule and authority. And the question is not, is God's word good? The question is, is am I gonna obey God's word? Because that's the only way it turns out for good in your life. And this is where I think we have this hang up when it comes to our own personal anxieties. See, where we take a different sin, Say it was stealing. With stealing, we don't go and rob Target and go, oh, it's, I was just kind of born this way. 
I, I just kind of have this predisposition, like this is, my mom used to steal too, and so I steal, and my grandmama, she would steal. She'd bite her fingernails every time she couldn't go steal. Like, we don't just go, oh yeah, you're just, yeah, that's your thing. You're just into, into stealing, and you know, we, we hope you get out of that. But that's the way we are when it comes to anxiety and worry. We go, oh, I just, I just grew up in, a, my mama was nervous, so I'm kind of the same way. And I, if I don't do this, I just got to get this way. And what if, think about it from one of those other sins. Wouldn't it be really smart of Satan? Is if, in a smart strategy to make sure you could keep doing something and stay bound by something, wouldn't it be a really, really, really smart strategy of him to convince you that it wasn't a sin? So that you just thought it was kind of the way you're wired. So that you can continue to struggle with it. And that it can continue. I mean, and this, guys, you guys, um, it's heartbreaking. Like, anxiety doesn't stop there. Anxiety leads to depression. Depression is the hopelessness of life that says, I, I should end my life. Satan is incredibly strategic, guys. And he's strategic in even the way he allows churches to talk about this. And that's why, like, I, I have a really hard time, like, saying this. Because, like, saying worry is the sin of unbelief. For all of you who struggle with that, I know that doesn't land easy. And, and I'm sorry for that. But the same way a doctor would say, I'm sorry for saying you've got cancer. Like, it, I have to. Because I think that's what God's word is saying to us. And what I, I think is so amazing about this reality, and again, hang with me here, because I think there's a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom in this, to go, it actually is a sin. Because when you say something is a sin, if you are being led by the Holy Spirit, like if you're a follower of Christ, if you are identifying something as a sin, then from there you should be going, I want to be forgiven and freed of this. And if we never identify it as that, well, then, you know, we're never forgiven and freed of it. And it's just this, you know, ugly friend that just follows us around for the whole entire life that we struggle with and that hopefully we just pray and cross our fingers it doesn't become worse. And I don't think that style of things is working. There's a story that I, I want to draw your attention back to because it, it, it unpacks this idea of unbelief and belief. Jesus is um, there and he's in one of the major cities and there happens to be this, this young boy and he's struggling with, with this impure spirit, this demon that's possessing him. And it's throwing him to the ground. Jesus is kind of not where this is actually happening, but there's this commotion, everything going on around it. The disciples, again, typical disciple fashion, they can't get the demon to come out. They're doing their best. You know, they're maybe riding a spiritual post, you know, hanging out with Jesus high. And so they're just like, don't tell Jesus, don't tell Come on, let's work real hard. Everybody together. One, two, three. Demon, come out. And like nothing is happening. And so Jesus comes out and he's talking to the dad in the story. And, um, he asked him what's going on. The dad says, your disciples couldn't do anything. And then verse 19, this is in Mark 9, if you want to go back and check it out. Mark 9, uh, the, the word that Jesus says. And again, put yourself in the scene. The dusty streets there in the city. A convulsing child in the dirt, rolling around, kicking up dust. Father, frantic. Your, your disciples couldn't do anything. And the next words out of Jesus' mouth are this. You unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? It sound, doesn't sound super sympathetic, does it? <laughs> Not at all. But Jesus was getting to the root of the problem. He was getting the root of the cancer. He was getting the root of the, de- the root of the possession. Just like he wants to get to the root of your anxiety. You unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And he says, bring the boy to me. 
So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, again, put yourself in this scene. Like, convulsing kid, rolling around, kicking up dirt, just, you know, like, very terrifying. In the moment here, this is what Jesus does. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Again, like, does Jesus need to know the answer to this question to heal this kid? No. But he needs you to hear how the father replies. Because I think there's keys for your healing from the thing that you thought you were just born as as well here. He said, how long has he been this, uh, like this? And listen to what the father said. Father answered back from childhood. So I think there are some things in our life. I know there are in mine. Uh, sins that I picked up as a kid. Things that I stumbled, stumbled on in, in a sock drawer. Things that I saw on TV. Defense mechanisms for abuse that I saw in my home. There are things that Satan worked and weaved his way into my home that if if I'm not careful, I'll just go, well, I've just been that way since I was little. And the the quote-unquote innocent one for a lot of people was I'm just overly worried and anxious. How long have you been that way? I just always, I don't remember a time when I wasn't super nervous, but I don't remember a time when I didn't bite my fingernails. I don't remember a time when I didn't hover over every uh, one of my kids to make sure they, I was just a super helicopter parent. I don't remember a time when, well, I just, what I grew up in, that's just all that was there. And he says, it's, it's been like that since childhood. And he goes on, he's explaining the condition more. He says, he's often thrown him into fire or water to try and kill him. And then I, this next line is, um, it's brutal and beautiful at the same time because you can hear a father's desperate heart, but you can also know that it's been like this in childhood and he's tried to see people help and it hasn't helped. Is that my phone? <laughs> okay, sorry. I, I, no, I, no <laughs> seriously, there's a, for those of you who are watching online, what in the world just happened? Um, I can't find my phone, so it's somewhere around here, so I didn't know, like, there's an alarm going off. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't want to, like, call anybody else out because, like, it very well, like, it's pro- I thought it was really probably my phone. I think I left it in the sound booth or something. I don't know. Anyway, here's what the, here's what the dad says. It's beautiful and brutal at the same time. He says, he's thrown him in the fire, he's tried to kill him. And then he's looking, I believe he looks Jesus in the eyes. He says, but if you can do anything, but if you can do anything, take pity on him and help us. And then again, you, you hear this, all this commotion's going on. And, and he says, if you can do anything, just please help us. And Jesus pauses, just kind of looks at him and says, if I can, if I can, if I can, if I can do it. Now I love his response. Jesus said, if I can, Everything is possible for the one who believes. And then verse 24, immediately the boy's father then exclaims, I do believe, help my own belief. I do believe, help my own belief. I think there's, there's a clue in there of how we fight out of anxiety. How we fight out really any, any, any of the sins and struggles that we find ourselves in is this reality that I do believe but I also gotta be honest with you, Jesus, I got some unbelief in here too. And I think sometimes we just go one way or the other. We just go to, I, don't, I have unbelief, and we get depressed, anxious, and we just never, we stop trying. We give up on God. Or we take this overly prideful approach that goes, I do believe, I do believe, I do believe, and we don't even realize how doubtful we really are. And we make fun of other people because they don't believe like we believe. 
he goes, no, you want, you, want to, you want to see healing happen? You want to see family members set free? You want to see that thing that you're most anxious and concerned about be solved and resolved and come to a peaceful resolution? Truly understand who I am and who you are. I'm the one you can believe in, but you're going to struggle with that because what belief in Jesus will look like in your life is not going to make sense all the time. And so it may mean that times you're going to have to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm pure. Help my lust. I'm generous. Help my greed. I'm humble. Help my pride. I'm honest. Help my lies. I'm secure. Help my insecurities. Lord, I believe. But please help my unbelief. I think there's power in identifying both sides of that coin. So when Jesus saw the crowd running to the scene, he rebuked them. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf, mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Never again. Spirit shrieked compulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. I don't think they said it like that. Uh, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him back to his feet, and he stood up. Healing happened. This thing that had been a childhood recurrence for this child, he was set free of. And so, we defined unbelief as a sin, and I, I want to give you real quick um, the ways I would say it comes to fruition. And again, I'm going to show you some big words. Don't check out on me. Um, worry is practical atheism, practical deism, or practical finite theism. Again, I said don't check out on me. I know these are words you're like, are you taking us to seminary today? No, I'm not. I just want to show you some stuff because I want you to see how this sin plays out, and I want you to see how it plays out in your life. So I'm going to define these things to you, and they're going to make a whole lot more sense. Again, I'm from Jackson, so I'm going to put it in you know, Jackson and Ola terminology. All right? Practical atheism. Again, this is, this is the sin of unbelief. Practical atheism is saying God is not there. It's you believing in your head. Again, it's practical atheism. Not what I believe. I believe in my head I believe that God is there. But you look at my checkbook, it doesn't say that God is there. You look at what I do in my time, it doesn't say that God is there. You look at what, how I act at work, it doesn't say that God is there. You look at how I parent my kids, it doesn't say that God It's practical atheism. That's why I may believe it in here, but it doesn't never find its way out. In regards to worry, it's going, I believe God is this, and he, is, uh, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but I'm going to work myself to death. The daycare is going to feed my kid breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'm barely going to know who they are. It's practical atheism. Practical deism says God is there. But he doesn't care. And oftentimes uh, the people, and I, this is where I find myself too, like you, you've messed up enough to where you go. Practical deism is going like, I don't deserve God to help me solve this problem because I created it. He does care. And that, that, that thought process is a lie from the pit of hell. He does care. Don't believe that lie that because you got yourself into it, you got to get yourself out of it. That's garbage. The other side is practical finite theism. That's saying he's there, but he isn't strong enough to be trusted. He's there, and he is strong, but he can't handle this debt. He is strong, but he can't handle these kids. He is strong, but he can't handle my singleness. It's, I'm, I'm, past, I'm past the point of no return. He's strong, but he's not strong enough to figure out this thing that I'm worried about the most. So which, of it, which one of those is it for you? 
Okay, it's not just defining it as a sin, it's, it's knowing how it plays itself out and where the deficiency in the trust that you should have for your father is. So if we've kind of figured out what's, what the sin of worry and, and, and fear and anxiety looks like, let's, let's lean into how Jesus makes arguments as to why not, why that shouldn't be something we should do. Let's go to um, Matthew six twenty six. Keep on going. He says, look at the birds of the air, which, thank you, Jesus, we're all sitting here worried, and you're like, look at birds. Look at birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? See, again, God's speaking about identity. He's saying birds. He says, you don't know who the bird's daddy is? Your father. And your God, these animals that have no eternal soul, your heavenly father feeds them. He's trying to give you God's identity as provider. Now, I think there's a reason why Jesus, and again, he's outside, he, why he says birds. Anybody know, like, I uh, want to guess, like, what's the most common bird in Georgia? What's the most common bird? It's not turkey vulture. I know, despite popular belief, you see them just munching on possums and raccoons all the time. It's not turkey vultures, not crows. Most common bird in Georgia that you're most likely to see is actually a cardinal. I didn't, I didn't believe that. I'm going to do some research on that. Anybody? Anyway, cardinal, that's it. Raise your hand if you saw a bird on your way into church today. Yeah. Uh, raise your hand if you saw a caracal. Nobody, right? Uh, no. What about a mountain lion? Anybody see a mountain lion on the way to work? No. Okay. See, Jesus in this text, he could have been completely theologically accurate, and he could have said, instead of saying, consider the birds, he could have said, consider the caracal. This is a caracal. This is this uh, long-eared, it's really cool looking. Um, I'm not much for cats, but if I got one, I would want one like that. Um, Just big enough to not eat me and small enough to, I don't know. Anyway, I would want one like that. Um, Nobody get me that for pastor appreciation. So there's a reason I think Jesus didn't say an animal that was very rare for someone to see. Now, caracals, they're in the mountains around Israel. So like Jesus speaking this mountain on a hillside in Galilee. It wouldn't have been out of the realm of imagination to think that they could wander into the more remote areas of those mountains and go find a caracal. An animal that God 100% still does, same way he does for birds, take care of, feed, and do all those things for. But I believe the reason that 2,000 some odd years ago, Jesus said, consider the birds instead of some other, any animal that he could have chosen and still been theologically correct on was he knows that you'll probably see a bird. If you're outside, you're gonna see a bird every 15 minutes. Because you need that many reminders of not to worry. You need that many reminders. If, if my God makes sure that they have worms or they have dead animals, if you're a turkey vulture, if my God makes sure that they have all those things and they're not his son and I am his son and his daughter, how much more is he going to care for me? He's saying, consider the birds. Look up. Take a second. Stop looking at what all is going around and look up. Matthew six twenty seven. he goes on. He says, um, can anybody... By worrying at a single hour to your life? Now, he's not just talking about like worry, you know, trying to worry your way into being able to live longer. I think what he's doing here is he's now making an eternal argument. He's saying the difference between birds, and in a second here, he's going to really talk about grass. The difference between you and grass is grass doesn't have an eternal destination. And so when he's saying, oftentimes you read this passage and you go, he's saying, which one of you by worrying can add an hour to your life? We think that we're talking about, you know, our life being shorter. What I think Jesus is not just talking about is like our life as in what we eat and what we do, but I think he's also talking about our eternal life. He's saying, which of you by worrying can make eternity five minutes longer? 
You can't. So he's saying, you have an eternal soul that's going to spend an eternal destination somewhere, but for some reason, this little blip on a radar that is life on earth, you're so consumed, not even with just this life. Again, he unpacked his whole argument because he just got through saying, life, even this life on earth, it's more than food and it's more than clothes. And he says, what's more than that life is the eternal life. And then he points here in verse 20, um, 28, he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet, I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor dressed like one of these. Verse 30, he says, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, that's his way of saying, God makes grass look better and better dressed than the best dressed person you could ever think of. And it's picked up and it's thrown into the fire the next day. You're eternal. Like you have a soul that's gonna spend an eternal destination somewhere. If God does that, for something that gets thrown into the fire the next day. How much more do you think that he is gonna care for you, the one who is created in his image and has an eternal soul that is gonna spend an eternity either rejoicing, sitting around the table, eating like a fat cat, just loving what all heaven has to offer, all the joy, all the fellowship, all the connection with people that we've lost, all of the beauty and majesty that a fully restored world can look like. It's gonna either spend eternity there or it's gonna spend eternity burning in the fire of hell. He's going, your father, he knows that that's the two endpoints for you. An eternity embraced with him or an eternity separated from him. And if he cares for flowers that don't have that on the line, he'll put clothes on your back. He'll put food in your belly. Verse 30. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? And then again, here's our word. Oh, you of little faith. Again, our anxiety and our worry is all tied back to a faith thing. It's, it's not a circumstance thing. It's a faith thing. And what Jesus is assuming with all of these arguments that he's making, again, he makes, in this passage, he makes nine arguments as to why we should not worry. And if we find ourselves still worrying after he makes all these arguments, it is not because we just are choosing not to believe Jesus. It's because we don't have enough faith to trust him. The way I would say is this is a little faith leads to big worry. Big faith leads to little worry. I've seen this be true in my life, and I, I, I will hope to see it be true in yours. If you keep your faith little, your, your faith and your trust in God stays little. Your worries will continue to stay big. But if your faith in God is big, it's a, my God can do that. My God, won't he do it? Watch the things that you worry about, the anxiety you have, fall down. So he, he comes on from here and, and begins to try to land the plane on this idea of anxiety in, in verse 31. He says, so don't worry again, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear again? He's like, you can hear him mustering up our anxious thoughts because that's how it goes. It spins, pinging back and forth from one thing. What are we gonna eat? What are we gonna drink? What are we wear? He says, for the pagans run after these things. Now, what he's talking about there, that pagan, we don't use that term a whole lot in our, our day and age. Basically, he was saying, anybody who doesn't believe in God as father, they don't believe like you believe. And again, he's not just saying you have a God. The whole thing that he's been unpacking through this whole Sermon on the Mount is God is not just this God. He's not just this deity that you follow because, you know, you want to be good and you want to make it to the good place, not the bad place when you die. He's saying, no, God is a father. People who are pagans, they don't believe that they have a father. They're atheists. They don't believe that they have a father who loves them. They're orphans. But you're not like that. you got a dad who loves you, cares for you. You're not an orphan. Don't, don't worry like one. Like it's all on your shoulders. Don't run after the things that they run after. 
Run after your father. He'll provide every single thing. And he says, okay, and this is what we love. And again, if you're one of those people like me, like you know you've been in a season of anxiousness or worry, and somebody sent you this passage, they're like, oh, mama, I know mama's been worrying a whole lot, and you sent her like Matthew 6. Or somebody, you know, you tell, tell a friend or accountability partner or something, you've been worrying, and you, they send you Matthew chapter 6, and you start reading through this passage, and you get down to this part, and you're like, okay, here's all the reasons why I shouldn't do stuff, and now I get to the part where I actually get told what I need to do. And he says these words. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And you're going, what does that mean? Right? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we go, what is, how do I do that? And Jesus kind of leaves us hanging, right? Like, what, is, how do I, uh, what does that mean? Here's how I would hope to try to define God's kingdom. Um, a lot of times when we hear, like, seek the kingdom of God, we think of this faraway place that we go when we die. That is not God's kingdom. Jesus initiated this when he starts the Sermon on the Mount. He says the kingdom, is, the kingdom is here. He does it in the prayer just a few verses before. He says, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Why would Jesus tell us to pray something like that if that is not the reality that he wanted to see come to fruition in our lives? The kingdom of God is any place where what God wants done is done. That can be heaven. That can be right here. That can be in your checkbook. That can be in your stock exchange. That can be in your parenting. That can be on your baseball team. That can be in the way you handle relationships with your boss. If those places are places where what God wants done is what is being done, then that is a place, friend, where the kingdom of God is. And he says, that's what I need you to be concerned about. Don't be concerned about money and just be concerned about money. Be concerned with, am I handling my money as God would have me do it. Because if my finances are a place where what God wants done is done, then the kingdom of God is there. In my parenting, is what God wants done between me and my children, what is being done to my children? Okay, well, the kingdom of God is here. And so those are the things we seek. Not to have more of it, but to know that more of what God wants done is happening in it. There's a quantum difference between the things we find ourselves running and going after. He says, seek the kingdom of God right there in your life. And then what will happen is it's going to begin to bubble out. You're going to see the kingdom of God in every nook and cranny of your life being a place where what God wants done is being done. And then it'll become, okay, well, what about at church? Like at this church family that I call home, this MCC family, is, is everything that God wants done being done there? Okay, well, how can I be a part of the solution? And then you look around at our city, and we can have, I mean, you got a laundry list of things to complain about. This past week, man, I was trying to get a baseball practice. I had the keys, so like everybody's just sitting outside the field, not able to get in. And it's just 5 o'clock. There's just a train that's just stalled. Like, it's just not going anywhere. And I'm just going like, why, God? Sometimes I get overly dramatic. I was hungry. Um, but, you, man, like, you can find a lot of things to complain about about this county you call home. But what if you begin to ask yourself, okay, what would, what would it begin to look like if more of what God wanted to be done was done here? His kingdom would come here, and, and maybe how would he want me to be a part of a church that was part of making that happen? See, when you start seeking those things, 
Like when that's what your attention and energy and effort goes after, not what does so-and-so think about me or what do I, how many likes did this post get or did I get invited to this party or do we have enough money to be able to have a good Christmas. When your mind starts to think about and dwell on is what God wants being done, done in this nook and cranny of my life and this nook and cranny of my city and this nook and cranny of this city, then you actually have things that are worth worrying about. God says, seek these things. That's the things that we're seeking. Everything else, it's not it. From there, he says, in verse 34, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So two things that are guaranteed to happen each day. One, it's gonna have trouble. There's another thing that's guaranteed to happen is that every day, along with this trouble, you get mercy. There's a verse I love, Lamentations 3, uh, Chapter three, verse 22 and 23 says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. That verse is making it really clear. Every day is gonna have trouble and every day is gonna have new mercy. The problem with us is we don't understand that today's mercies aren't for tomorrow's troubles. They don't work on tomorrow's troubles. Today's mercies only work on today's troubles. I heard Tony Evans say this this past week. He said, a lot of us spend our lives kind of like how Jesus was crucified between two thieves. A lot of us spend our lives crucified between two thieves as well. Crucified between the thief of tomorrow and yesterday. This is where we spend our life. Worrying about everything that happened yesterday and worrying about everything that's gonna happen tomorrow. And so many of us, we spend our lives anxiously worrying, crucified between these two thieves. Your past will rob from you and your future will rob from you if you don't take the mercies that God has for you today. And I like how the ESV, uh, that last sentence there in that verse, I love how the ESV translates it. Um, It uses this word sufficient. It says, uh, that last part of verse 34, it says sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Which, what that means is, without your help at all, tomorrow's gonna have enough trouble on its own. Like you don't even have to bring any of your trouble to the table. <laughs> and there's already gonna be enough. It's gonna be completely sufficient. So again, the guarantees, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. The guaranteed is tomorrow is gonna have a sufficient amount of trouble. Not rainbows, unicorns, and any of that kind of stuff. Tomorrow is gonna have a sufficient amount of trouble without you doing anything to bring anything into it. So he's promising a sufficient amount of trouble, but the other thing that he also promises is a sufficient amount of grace. And I love how he explained this to a guy who I think struggled with anxiety probably way more than any of us have ever imagined. A guy named Paul. He's the Apostle Paul. He went around and he planted all these churches throughout the Mediterranean. And, uh, and as he's doing, has people who are trying to kill him, after, kill him after kill him. He's in and out of prison. He's in and out of persecution. He's shipwrecked. He's getting bit by poisonous snakes. All this crazy stuff has happened to Paul. Uh, even in one of the letters he wrote, wrote to the church in Corinth, like he is borderline suicidal. He says, it got so bad, guys, we, we wanted life to be over completely. And he talks about this encounter he has with God and, and, and how God humbles him in this moment. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, if you want to go back and check it out, he, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, which a lot of you, that's how would you, defi- you would define your anxiety. This is a thorn in my flesh. It's something that's just not going away. So I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. That's what anxiety does. Tells you some lies. Gets you to believe that things are going to happen tomorrow that are probably not going to happen tomorrow. It's a messenger. It always, anxiety always has a message. Maybe that's one of the things you guys start doing is, is, is trying, to, trying to really decipher what is the message my anxiety is trying to tell me and how is that contrary to the message that Jesus is trying to tell me. 
messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with God to take it away from me. And that's been some of you guys' story. You plead, God, take this anxiety away. Verse 9. But God said to Paul, and I think he would say to all of us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So where the day has a sufficient amount of trouble, God is saying, I've got a sufficient amount of grace. That's a great place for an amen. He says, therefore, I, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. And this, this is where it's okay for us to go, hey, I'm struggling. I'm a little anxious. I'm a little nervous about this. Boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults and hardships and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Where does, that come, where does that strength come from? Where do we get it? I believe it comes from prayer. One of the other things that Paul wrote that's been a, a thing that's really helped me out a lot in this season where anxiety and worry has been something that has come kind of out of left field in my own life um, is every moment of anxiety and worry is also an invitation to pray. And that's one of the reasons why Satan tries so hard to get you to spin, to get you to spin that wheel and to just get on that merry-go-round of worry, anxiety, and stress. See, Satan's smart. He doesn't send you a bad thought. Because if he sends you a bad thought, evil thought, whatever, you're just going to go, ooh. But he sends you kind of an innocent thought that's got a little bit of nasty in it so that you can turn it into something bad. And so he, he says here, every invitation, every, every anxiety moment you feel is an invitation to pray. And that verse that uh, Eric read, spot on, we didn't plan it this way. Philippians 4, 6, 7. That's why he says, don't be anxious about anything. Again, Jesus knows, Paul does too, that anxiety is gonna come. Every day he's got a sufficient amount of his own trouble. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And as we get ready to celebrate communion together as a church, that's where I want you to know that that peace for your anxious, worried, troubled mind is found. Think about the two illustrations that Jesus uses here in his Sermon on the Mount. It's as if he knew the cross was coming. He says, don't worry about your clothes and don't worry about your food. And a few months later, the same man who was God, who said those things, is giving his life to be a meal. To be this meal that we would do week in and week out in remembrance of him as our broken bread. In remembrance of his broken body. In that place of the cross where he would pour out his blood for the redemption and salvation of all mankind. And prior to that body being broken and that blood being poured out, the clothes that he promised you your heavenly father would provide for him were stripped completely off of him to the point of complete nudity and gambled away by his murderers. And it's that, that God who's willing to go through that torture that looks at us and says, I was treated as a starved and naked orphan so that you could be a well-fed and well-clothed child of the most high God. So friend, don't worry about anything, but take these moments to pray about everything. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Um, it is sufficient. We thank you for the new mercies that we experience today. They are sufficient as well. 
as we come and talk to you in these moments of communion. God, show us our insufficiency. Show us where our unbelief is. And fill it with belief. Belief in what you can do through a heart that trusts solely in you. In your name.